are longing for the same kingdom that we are. And for my family, it's been a particularly blessing this week, just being a part of a church that prays for us, that loves us. As Terry mentioned, we've had a hard week um, wanting to be with our, uh, my brother and sister-in-law, Katie's older brother and sister. And um, by God's grace, we had a wonderful time on Skype, full of tears with them yesterday and full of encouragement too, um, to hope uh, in a new kingdom and to be grateful for the things, the blessings that God has given. So I just want to thank you for that. And I just want to broaden that a little bit. We just, we feel very welcomed by the church. And I think that's a testimony of God's grace in your life, uh, that God is using this body to welcome us. Um, and I think that uh, I'm not going to name anybody specific because I think that we have been tangibly helped by so many in this church that it would be uh, impossible to, to name all of you individually. Some of you we haven't even met yet, and we're receiving things from you. So uh, that is not like the world. That is like someone who's been redeemed by uh, the gospel of Christ. So we just want to thank you for that. Um, so James left, and he gave me a, a tough passage. He gave me uh, 31 verses, and... Um, Really, this could be eight sermons. It really is. So we're talking about divorce, lust, adultery, um, uh, uh, honesty, and um, loving, your, loving your enemies. <clears throat> so <clears throat> there's a reason, there's a rhyme and reason that he did this. And um, yeah, so we're going to see that. So we're going to take the 20,000 foot view. We're not going to dig down, down deep into the text per se. We are going to dig deep. We're going to be faithful to what Jesus says by his grace, I hope. Um, so just, uh, yeah, gear in. It's exciting. It's, it's, it's God's word, and he's going to speak to us through it. So I was thinking of an analogy to open up this text. <clears throat> and I was thinking about, in our house, we almost daily ask three questions to our kids. Are you obeying right away? Are you obeying all the way, and are you obeying with a happy heart? We did not come up with this. It's just something we learned from uh, uh, reading a book on parenting. And it's been really helpful for us. But the thing is, why do we ask the last question? Does it really matter the state of the heart? If I ask my daughter to pick up her toys, and she completes the task, she does it right away, and she does it all the way, every single toy is picked up. Why does the third with a happy heart matter? And I think that's the heart of the matter at what Jesus is getting at when he's talking to his disciples. So our series is entitled The Foundations for a Church on Missions. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we're finding out that there is a long-awaited for king also known as the Messiah, or the Anointed One. And this king's name is Jesus. And he's showing the people what the kingdom of God is like. We see him raising up followers. We see that this king is the one that is prophesied about in the Old Testament. And we also see that in his coming to earth, he's rejected by many. Ultimately, to the point of death on a cross. In the Gospel of Matthew, which has 28 chapters, we're in chapter number 5. In the midst of one of the world's most famous speeches that has gone on and has been popular for over 2,000 years. 
So what Jesus is doing, he's going up, and this is called the Sermon on the Mount. He's going up to a mountain, and he, he sits on top of the mountain, his disciples next to him, and we get the sense that people are starting to follow and crowd in, crowd in around him and listen to what he's sharing with his disciples. He goes through the Beatitudes, which is what James explained last week, and he says to his followers that you are the salt of the earth. You are a lamp on a lampstand. In order that a watching world may see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. So these disciples, and the word disciple actually just means follower. So these followers of Jesus are hearing this new teaching. And there's a difference in this new kingdom from what they've heard before. It's otherworldly. It doesn't sound like what the teaching they've been getting from the Pharisees and the scribes their whole lives. And in the Beatitudes, which was preached last week, James mentions the characteristics of this kingdom. And the characteristics of the kingdom aren't the ones that we exalt very much. They're not very popular in this world. Meekness, mercy, uh, purity, being a peacemaker, thirsting and hungering for righteousness, humility. So after going through these kingdom characteristics, Jesus begins to explain the heart of the Old Testament. And that's where we are today. And that's why this text is so big. We're taking what Jesus did, uh, explain the heart of the Old Testament and trying to do it in one sermon. I think you can, because I think that Jesus has at least three points, not an exhaustive list, uh, that he's teaching to his followers right now. So D.A. Carson, a well-known theologian, mentioned that this text is one of the most hard to understand in the New Testament. He was only talking about the first four verses, not the entire 31. So with that in mind, what we'll do, like I said, we'll look at the 20,000-foot view. And there's a lot of details in the text that could be covered. But I think that Jesus is teaching, in his teaching, he's trying to help us understand the three main points. If you take notes, either mental or you're jotting them down, here they are. One, Jesus fulfills the law. Two, the spirit of the law is love. And three, the requirement of the law is perfection. Meaning, one must keep this law 100% to be part of the new kingdom. So, we're not going to read the entire text, but we are going to ask you to stand with your Bibles. I don't have the page number. I do have the page number. It's page 810 in your pew Bible. Matthew, we're going to read Matthew five seventeen through 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You can be seated. So this is our first point. Jesus fulfills the law. This is verses 17 through 20. If you're tired this morning, 
I encourage you to have your Bible right there in front of you. It makes this a lot more interesting if you can look down at your word and follow what I'm saying because we're talking about the law. There's 168 hours in the week, and you only have one hour, maybe you add more hours, to hear public teaching of the word. So this is important. Let's, let's give this hour and let's try to understand what God is meaning by this text. Now what's occurring here is that people are asking, on whose authority does this man teach? His teaching is vastly different from that of the scribes and the Pharisees. For one, he's operating outside the authority of the scribes and Pharisees. He doesn't go to them and say, hey, I have been reading this text. I am the Messiah. Do I have your permission to go around and be teaching this? He never does that. Even though this intricate religious system has been set up for generations upon generations. It's been practiced by the the, the Pharisees and the... um, the Pharisees and the scribes have been teaching this system for these generations. And he doesn't go to them for permission or for counsel on how to interpret this word. At the same time, this man's authority is seen because he starts healing people. And his fame, it says in Matthew chapter uh, 4, that his fame is spreading all throughout Syria. Now that he has everyone's attention, people are asking about this authority. What is the relation to his authority and the law of Moses? Maybe they were thinking he came to contradict the law. If anyone thinks that his aim is to undermine the law, Jesus is making it very clear right here that that's not his aim. The writings of the law, and this is a little bit confusing, but the law, when you see law right now as I'm speaking, that means Old Testament. So the writings of the law, the book of Moses, the Old Testament, are not to be abolished with him. In fact, he says that they're coming to fruition through him. They are being fulfilled. Is this new teacher who heals diseases, who makes paralytics walk, and frees those oppressed by demons a whole new faith? Is it a new religion? That's what people are wondering. He emphatically says, no, I am neither repealing or annulling the law. In fact, I am fulfilling it. That's his point. So the New Testament, this is, uh, all right, this is when you've got to really pay attention because this took me years to understand, and I'm going to try to explain it to you briefly right now. The New Testament uses the word law in two distinct ways. And this distinction is important to our understanding of the Scriptures. First, the word law refers to the actual laws found in the Old Testament. So think of the Ten Commandments, think of... Uh, Leviticus, all of the detailed laws in there. So consider that our lowercase l law. So not the big L, but the lowercase law. The second way the word law is used is referring to the Old Testament itself. Sometimes it's referred to as the Pentateuch, which means a five-fold book. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And sometimes... Jesus refers to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets and the writings. So what he does here in verses 17 through 18, he's referring to the whole Old Testament. So it's not lowercase l, it's big case l. In Luke 24, right before his ascension into heaven, Jesus says that these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
So what he's saying is, scribes, Pharisees, people following me, what you've been reading, what you've been learning, all of that, here I am. I am the fulfillment of this law. And as you can guess, people have a lot of questions and don't understand what he's saying. So he knows this as well. And so he starts digging into, um, dig, digging into the law. So let's look at verse 19. Jesus says this, Anyone who relaxes the least of these commandments will be called the least in the kingdom of God. The scribes and the Pharisees are the current day experts on the law. The scribes have memorized and recited the law, and the Pharisees are the ones that are applying it to life. They're elaborating the law to current practices, how it's used in daily life. The thing is, Jesus is saying, even in their zeal to keep the laws and to follow the law, the big L, the the Torah, the, the Old Testament, they are being left outside the kingdom of heaven. Just think about that. They've devoted their whole lives to this. And Jesus is saying that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And everyone there is thinking they are the most righteous of all. Who can get into your kingdom? So for Jesus is not abolishing the law. He's making that very clear. In fact, in two specific ways, he's fulfilling it. First, he fulfills it with his keeping of the laws, lowercase l. He's keeping all of the laws. Secondly, he fulfills it because he is a king that all of the Old Testament is pointing to. So his, his fulfillment is in two ways. So Jesus says that this law, this book, this Old Testament is going to last for ages and ages to come. How did they get it wrong? If, if the scribes and Pharisees have devoted their whole lives to this, how in the world do they get it wrong? I wonder if it has anything to do with the heart of the matter. Think about um, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in a season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. I wonder if the Pharisees and the scribes were like that man described in Psalm 1. I don't know. I'm thinking that it's not, though. <laughs> Meditating on the, on the law of God delights your soul. Because it's true. In a world full of things that aren't true, of things that are fading away, Jesus says this is never going to pass away. This law is true. This word is true. So my encouragement to us is, are you reading your Bible? It's a very simple question, but it's something I think we forget to do sometimes because we forget its importance. In Isaiah, the the, uh, prophet Isaiah says... um, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So this word that we have in our language, praise God, that you have in front of you is going to endure and last forever. How can we live by faith if we don't understand this word? Every day we wake up and we have two choices. Every minute, really. I am going to live in the spirit or I'm going to live in the flesh. 
God, by his grace, has given us a word to help us live in the Spirit. And it is through the reading and the meditating and the delighting in this word that we are able to fight the world, to fight fleshly desires. And that's what Jesus is getting at. This word is going to last forever. So I encourage you to to read it. Get accountability. Get in a Bible study. um, Put it on your podcast. Make habits that put you in front of the word. Listen to Psalm 119. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Does this sound like someone who just memorized the Bible? I think this person is delighting in this word. Later in Psalm 119, it is written, I rejoice in your word. In another part, it says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So if God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens, church, if not a jot or a tittle, meaning not even like the the cross of a T or the dot of an I, will not be changed. If 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable to us, what is keeping us from reading it and meditating it and loving it? So get involved in the reading plan. Get accountability. Every day you're faced with the battle to battle the principalities of the air. Our battle isn't flesh and blood. Our battle is the unseen world that draws us back in to wants us not to be salt to the world, not to be a light on a lampstand. So that's, that's our battle. And the Bible is our anchor. The Bible is our, God's means to anchor us into, into, um, into living in the spirit and not in the flesh. So that's our first point. Jesus is fulfilling the law. He's not abolishing it. So if you're not reading your Old Testament, Jesus said it's still as good then as it is now. In fact, it's even more clear to us now in having the New Testament. Our second point is that Jesus explains the heart of the law. So everyone, I'm actually going to read all of this. And it's good for your soul because it's the word of God. Amen? All right, so here we go. If you want to read, follow along with me in, in um, chapter 5, verse 21 through 47. You have heard that it was said of the, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So let's look at the first of these six examples on anger. So Jesus is taking what surely everyone knows, the sixth commandment, and he's saying, he's repeating it, you shall not murder. We've heard that, they've heard that, and most of the crowd, indeed most of us, we're doing pretty well right now, aren't we? We haven't murdered, most of us. And most of the crowd, indeed, they're doing well. But then, then he says something that, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So he's saying that angry thoughts and words that aim to wound both derive from the heart. So the outward manifestation of anger can ultimately lead to what? To murder. Murder generally is the end result of a little seedling of anger. So the murderer's evil act is preceded by an angry thought. Now, most angry thoughts don't bloom into the actual killing of someone. And because of this, most people, most readers of this are thinking they're doing well. They're keeping the sixth commandment. And they're doing what it teaches. But hear what Jesus says. Listen to this. Judgment comes on anyone that is angry or insults someone. These angry feelings, though they're not manifested in murder, they go against the spirit of the sixth commandment. 
And Jesus says, in my kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, it's not the outward manifestation of sin that ultimately matters, though it does. It's what is in the heart. So have you murdered anyone in your heart? Do you have anger this morning? Is there bitterness that's grown in your heart towards someone? But Mark, they've done this to me, you don't understand. <laughs> Look at this text says. You have disobeyed a holy God. You have anger in your heart. It's a seedling of murder, Jesus says. Let that sit on you. It's painful. It's painful when you realize what's going on in your own heart, isn't it? I mean, how can you even obey the second commandment if you have anger in your heart toward your brother and sister? The second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So you're not just breaking the sixth commandment now, you're breaking the second one. So listen to what he says about taking oath, an oath. Think about this, church. The reason, oath, the reason an oath or promises are given is because of distrust or dishonesty. It's because of the evil that we even have an oath. You see, giving an oath is an elaboration of what should be a simple yes or no. But that's not the world we live in. And Jesus is not saying, do away with giving oaths, do away with promises. He's not saying, do away with courts or laws. He's just telling it like it is. In the kingdom of heaven, the, the, the uh, reiteration of promises of, or of yeses or noes, they won't be necessary because everyone's going to be honest. It'll be a land of honesty and integrity. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And think about the, the heart of a prenuptial agreement. It's distrust. It's a security. It's insurance. And I'm not here talking about prenuptial agreements. I'm just saying, like, in the kingdom of heaven, there's not going to be that. There's just going to be a trust, a faithful childlike trust that everything is going to be pure and honest. And isn't that what you long for if you're a Christian? Aren't you just a little weary of a world where we're constantly wondering if someone's going to do us wrong? Remember living overseas, going to the market? Man, I'm, I am clearly not from that land. I'm really tall, and my skin is a different color than most people there, and I just look a bit different. And I go there, and I say, okay, I'll take, um, can I, how much are the oysters? Uh, um, uh, $10 for, for half a kilo. I'm like, okay, is that guy, is he duping me? You know, I don't know. That, that's, that's how we lived over there, because there's just dishonesty. And that goes on here, too. When someone sells you a car that uh, may have gone to a flood or something like that. It's not, I mean, it's universal. Um, I was trying to, thinking about this point and thinking about my own life. When I was in high school, uh, my friend and I created a word. And, and we'd be telling you, he's a really good friend of mine. And this word would, had a lot of power in our relationship. So when we tell, tell each other something, just to validate, to make sure that what we're saying is actually true, we would say this word. The word was nibbles. So <laughs> nibbles is this, you remember those big calculators, the TI ones? I don't know. You probably don't use them today. You probably use iPads or something. I have no idea what you guys use. But we had these big calculators that were like this big, and it had a little screen. It had this little game where a worm would chase food and the worm would grow, and it's called nibbles. So we made that our word. 
nibbles. So I'd be like, hey, man, so and so, so said this. He's like, no, are you serious? I'm like, yes, I'm serious. No, I don't believe you. Nibbles, man, nibbles. <laughs> and it was done. He's like, okay, because he had that much trust in me. I mean, how ridiculous is that? One of my best friends can't even trust my yes or no. He had to go up to some made-up word, to some commitment, to an oath. Heaven won't be like that. A simple yes or no is all that is needed. As soon as it is necessary to boulder it, your yes or no with an oath in order to persuade others to believe what is said, the ideal of transparent truthfulness has been compromised. The need for such an addition is from evil. That's what Jesus says. It betrays our failure to live up to God's standard of truthfulness. And we long for a world of trustworthiness and dependability. Not characteristics of doubt, distrust, and unreliability. That's this world. So let's look at retaliation for a second. Jesus is now setting a new law of the land. He's, I'm sorry, he's not setting a new law of the land. He is revealing what righteousness looks like. It is not his intent to have no sense of justice in this world. That's not his intent at all. But it is his intent to show that if his disciples are to be the light of the world, there must not be an eye for an eye sense among them. And if our church has an eye for an eye sense among us, we're not very bright. We're not very salty. If we have a justice mentality every time someone does us wrong, we're not a light on a lampstand. And I don't think we're there. I think that this, is, this church, what, they're doing, what, what we're doing is we're believing the word. We're, we're founded on the word of God. And God is blessing that. People are coming to, to, to church. Unbelievers are coming to youth. And they're not coming because we look just like the world. Women aren't coming to giggles because it's just another playgroup. There's something attractive. There's something salty about what we offer. Because we've been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's something to rejoice in church. That God is working in our lives. But it's also something to, to remember, you know, to ask yourself, are you a gracious person? Are you a person that someone would characterize as merciful? What about loving your enemies? Now, this is probably the one that has been grossly twisted the most uh, amongst the Pharisees and the scribes. It's a gross twist of the second commandment. The second commandment says, Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. And purportedly, the teaching of the second commandment had left off the as yourself part and somehow had added hate and hate your enemies. How sick is that? The teachers of God's word have said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. That's the second commandment? I never noticed that until studying that. Is that new to anyone else? Notice that Jesus is not directly quoting the Old Testament. He is, however, quoting the current misguided and erroneous teaching of it. See, God takes sin seriously. He says that even breaking The spirit of the law is enough to send you into the hell of fire. And we know that he takes sin seriously because his son died in our place. And if you're not a believer here, if you're you're a guest or if you've been coming for a while and you haven't fully embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to let you know that the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
and everyone is in need of a Savior. And that's the heart of the message of the gospel, is that God takes sin so seriously that he would send his own son into the world and have him live a perfect life, mocked, despised, the king of kings despised, and ultimately put on a cross. That's how much God hates sin. That there had to be a perfect substitution. So if, you're, if that message is new to you, or if you haven't fully embraced this, I encourage you to ask someone who brought you, or ask someone who believes that message more about it. So church, let's do a test here. This passage has been really hard for me to read this week. It exposes the wickedness of my own heart. Is there anyone in your life that you're hating right now? Let me change that. Because we've gotten so good at saying, oh, I don't hate them, I just don't like them, right? Or I just don't care for them. Or they just, they, I just don't like being around them. Well, that's not, that's not very loving, is it? We're just a bunch of experts in the law if we're doing that, aren't we? If we should hate anything, church, let it be sin. And that's the heart of this message. That's what Jesus is getting at. When your sin becomes bitter, the gospel becomes very sweet. Holiness becomes sweet. If you look at the sin, if you start hating your sin, if you start getting uncomfortable with the world and the kingdom that we currently live in, you start really longing for a different kind of kingdom. And that's what Jesus is getting at right here. So do you hate sin? Do you hate somebody? Ask yourselves that question. Just think about it. I want to I stop talking for five seconds and just say, is there anyone in my life who I am embittered with, who I am hating, who I am angry with? And what does Jesus say to that? He says, you're committing murder in your heart. The law demands perfection, perfect love. It's not just the outward manifestation of murder. It's love. Do you sense your need of him right now? I certainly do. Lastly, Jesus says in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Earlier in verse 20, Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That righteous requirement is summed up in the last verse. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Most likely taken from Leviticus, it says, Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Be holy as I am holy, God says. Do you feel the requirement? Do you see the standard set out by God? You may be asking yourself, Well, God, is this a fair standard? I am human after all. I don't hurt people on a daily basis. But I ask you, who sets up the standard of life? Is it you or is it God? I think the one who made us can set the standard. We were made out of dust, and to dust we'll return. God is the one that sets the standard. So if you ever have issue with something in the Bible, I would just caution you to not sit over it, but to sit under it and let it speak to you. And to those hard truths of the Bible, we all have them, various aspects that are really hard for us to understand, to believe, fight to believe them. Read the word and let it sit over you. And by God's Holy Spirit, he works in you. He changes you to trust in his word.
because his word does not contradict. His word is true and eternal, and it gives life. Romans 9 compares this to pots, and to God being the potter. It says, should the clay pot say to the potter, why did you set up this standard? No. You see, God's standard is good. Have you ever been in a community where they have this standard? Have you ever been in a family where the ethics of the kingdom of God are somewhat played out? It's unlike anything this world has to offer. So I encourage you to get involved in this church more and more to see other people where the kingdoms of this new, the ethics of this new kingdom are being displayed. It's wonderful. It's unlike anything. That's what God used to bring me to himself. As I saw the, king, the ethics of this new kingdom being displayed through a church, being displayed through a family. And it's unlike anything this world has to offer. It's supernatural. So John, John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, he, he wrote these words. People think he wrote these words. No one really knows for sure, but we'll credit to him. It says, Run, John, and work the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and lends me wings. See, that's what the law requires of, this, of us. It sets a standard. It says, do this, do this, do this. But we have no capability of doing it, do we? You hear a bunch of rules. You say, okay, go out this week and you obey all these commandments. Don't hate anyone. Don't let any insult come out of your mouth. And we can't do it. But sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. Isn't that the truth? So think about my kids in obedience. Because she is my child, I generally know what is good for my child. Generally. Much like God knows what is good for his children. And God loves us. And in that, in his love, he gives to us this good news to follow. His good news is ultimately displayed in the gospel. But we also see it in him laying out the ethics of this new kingdom. So the application of this text, I think, is pretty simple. One is holiness. Do not cheapen the grace of God. Pursue him with thankfulness. Pursue him and be holy. Now we know, I hope it's clear, that no one has the expectation on them that they are going to completely fulfill the requirements of the law. I hope that's clear. But what does Jesus say in Matthew 22? He says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of all? Someone asked. And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the laws and the prophets. So church, if we get this one commandment, if we fulfill it, all the other commandments would naturally follow suit. So let's ask ourselves, how can we love God with our entire being? In the Bible, we see that the genuine love in our hearts to God is promoted by an awareness of his love for us. The love of God is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you want to obey the first commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, start preaching the gospel to yourself. You will experience a zealous love for him as you understand his love for you. And I think that as a Christian, 
That's the only way to move forward in this world full of untruths, is to preach the gospel to yourself. So get involved in this church. Rub shoulders with people that love this gospel. Because in this gospel is truth. And we feel, as Christians, we feel a longing for the kingdom. I felt a longing for the kingdom come this week when my brother and sister-in-law gave birth to a stillborn. That's not how the new kingdom will be. There will be no death. There will be no mourning. I feel a longing for the kingdom when someone cuts me off and an insult comes out of my mouth that someone doesn't even know me. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what's going on in their life. But what comes out of my heart? Church, fight with your sin and look forward to the kingdom coming. It's something to be rejoice in. Let's pray. God, we do long for this kingdom to come. We long to stop living by faith and to start living by sight. And God, it will be a beautiful and it will be a glorious day when we stand face to face with you. We see the one who was pierced for our transgressions, the one whose sacrifice was complete, the one who loved us enough to die for us. So Father, while we wait for your kingdom to come, while we pray for its coming, please give us strength to follow your commandments, to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who we have been crucified with. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Would you please, God, strengthen our church to believe this? And we love you, God. We thank you for your provision in the gospel. Please accept our praises now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.